You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcast. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories. And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard. T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. In today's episode, Preston and I continue our conversation from last week's episode. If you haven't already listened to last week's show, I'd recommend you go back and listen to it before continuing on with this one. Without further delay, let's jump into part two, right where we left off. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. It's kind of hard to fathom, honestly, and it's from someone who doesn't know a ton about Bitcoin, it's kind of hard to see why it wouldn't be better than gold or why it wouldn't do all the things that you expect it to do. So yeah, I mean, I definitely, definitely agree with you. Now let's talk about mining. We've talked about blockchain. We've talked about a couple different cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Let's 
have a discussion about mining. What exactly is that? This one's hard. For somebody who's not extremely technical to understand this, it's, it's going to be hard to really kind of plow through it. So let me just try to describe it like this. Almost everything that you look at in Bitcoin can almost have a correlation to the physical gold market. So are there companies out there mining for gold right now? Yes, there are. They're digging the gold out of the ground. How do you know that they're, that they're digging out of the ground? Well, you could look at their, all their expenses on their income statement and you can see all the hardware, all the equipment, all the man hours. And when you look at that and you know the probability of how much resources you got to expend to pull one ounce of gold out of the ground, you can get an idea of the amount of work that went into basically achieving that feat of finding something that scarce, which gold is extremely scarce. With Bitcoin, what you have is a bunch of people that are running their processor on their computer and they're trying to solve a puzzle. And this is their work. So there's a riddle that's published every 10 minutes or until the block is discovered and the next block occurs. But on average, it's around 10 minutes. And it publishes a riddle and it and it's basically saying, solve this mathematical puzzle that can only be solved through guesswork. When you talk about encryption, it's a one direction function. So let me give you an example. If you type the word the, and then you took those three characters and you put it through an encryption algorithm. So for Bitcoin, you use SHA-256 encryption. Then you, you put the, T-H-E, all lowercase into the SHA-256 encryption. It's going to always pop out on the right side of the equation, a solution, a hash. Okay, and it has, and I'm sure many people have seen a cryptographic hash. And it's it looks like seven, eight, A, R, capital T, like like it has this big long string, right? And it pumps out the same length of the string as the output. Now, if you took the word the and you made it capital T, lowercase H E, and you put it through the one-way function, it's gonna pump out a completely different hash. If you took an entire book and you put it as an input to the SHA-256 encryption. It's still going to pump out a hash that has the same number of characters as the word the. But if you ran that entire book without any of those letters being different through the SHA-256 encryption, it's going to pop it out on the other side. Same thing. So when these miners are trying to, to solve the puzzle, what they're doing is the Bitcoin protocol is saying, here's the hash, and it's not giving you the full hash. And this gets into really complex mathematics, but it's not giving you the full hash. It's giving you a portion of the hash that's easier to solve. Than if you had to solve the entire hash. And it's saying, solve this riddle. The only way you can solve the riddle is by guessing the word, the whatever that makes up this hash, this output, this one-way encryption output. And so all these, all these processes are, are guessing. Oh, I think it's the word the. I think it's the word most. I think it's the word, and I'm dumbing this down as far as how the computers are guessing. And so all these computers are guessing what the output is, or what the input is to that one-way encrypted output. Once a computer solves that, what it does is it takes all the transactions that have been requested during that period of time from when the riddle was basically put out to the world to solve. And it's taking all those, those transactions that went into the mempool, and then it, it basically conducts those transactions through that proof of work that that miner just solved. And then you have a header and a basically a tail inside that block that also has encryption that then gets tied to the very next block that goes. 
And so long story short, what these miners are doing is they are just like if you're mining gold, they are conducting work in order to, in order to prove that they solve the puzzle. And what they're doing is they're actually securing the transactions because if you wanted to try to go back and, and undo one of those transactions, you have to go back in time, then be able to solve the next puzzle in addition to the puzzle that you solved where the original transaction happened. And that's where the, the miners cannot, from a mathematical sense, conduct that and do it in a manner that is cost efficient to them for all the work and the energy that they're consuming in order to do it. So I don't know if that, if that did a good job of answering your question, but that's the best way I can kind of describe something that is extremely technical. So with that being so complex, I'm sure we were just touching on the surface. Are coins that don't require mining better than coins that do require it? Like say Bitcoin? So you're going to get a whole range of opinions on this one. But what I would tell you is, I personally believe that the only reason Bitcoin's price continues to go up, especially during this first decade of the protocol, is because what you're doing is this proof of work algorithm. This is called proof of work. What I just described before was is proof of work. And what you're really implying is a proof of stake mechanism where the people that own all the units basically have a vested interest in the security of the protocol and so that the protocol doesn't fail. But what, what my opinion is, is how does gold have an intrinsic value? Well, it's based on that cost that it takes for them to pull it out of the ground. It's based on this is this is a really, really tricky conversation because it's somewhat based on the cost to pull it out of the ground. And then it's somewhat based on the the demand for people to hold it and the utility of it. So when you're talking about Bitcoin early on, if you were one of these miners and let's say you spent a hundred dollars worth of fiat in order to mine a hundred bitcoins early on, you spent a hundred dollars of fiat to get a hundred dollars of Bitcoin. There's no way you're going to sell one of those Bitcoins for less than a dollar. It doesn't make any sense. So what you have very early on in the protocol is because of the proof of work and because of the cost associated with mining it, you were able to stick a price tag to what one of the units were worth. And so one of the other pieces of the protocol is that every four years, the protocol gives half as much reward for solving the riddle. And so think of it like mining gold. So if you were going to mine some gold and today we were able to mine 100 ounces of gold for $100 and then tomorrow it got twice as hard for you to mine the same amount. What happens to the price that you're willing to sell it for? Well, you're only willing to sell it for double what you were doing it because your your production costs literally doubled to get the same amount. And so that's what the Bitcoin protocol has been doing for a decade now is every 4 years the amount of reward gets cut in half. And what you find is the miners are unwilling to sell it for a loss. And the miners that can't mine it for profit fall out of the system. They just say, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. And they stop competing. And so as that competition goes down, guess what? Other people step in and then the price. And so that that's what's driving the adoption curve at the rate at which it's going. And so when you plot it and you get Metcalf's law out of the price, it all starts to make sense when you can understand how... And this is the other big thing, is you've seen these big price swings. It, it has 68% volatility on an annual basis. Well, why does it have 68% volatility? Well, I would argue 
one of the reasons that you have that is this symbiotic relationship between the four-year halving cycle and a two-week difficulty adjustment, which we haven't even talked about that's also built into the protocol. This relationship between those two functions is what's driving that, that intense volatility. I would tell you it's by design so that you can get entrenchment into the existing financial rails. So there's so many things going on inside of this that it's, it's kind of mind-bending, to be quite honest with you. I want to go into a conversation about how to value a Bitcoin next. But before we do that, just like you said, it is, it is mind-bending. And I'm, I'm just wondering, how in the world did someone even come up with this? How did they even create this? Where did it come from? No one knows. And I would tell you that some type of mathematical genius that understands game theory to the nth degree, that understands economics to the nth degree, that understands network effects to the nth degree, that understands branding and marketing to the nth degree. And I mean, just the programming. I mean, you can, you can hit so many different fields of technology inside of something that from a distance looks silly to the commoner of just like magic internet money, right? That it's kind of hard to even wrap your head around how a person could possibly understand all those things and then to release it and then to have the success that it's had. It's, it's mind-bending. Again, it's indescribable. And to keep it all a secret. Well, and you know, I think that that also goes to the intelligence of, of the person or the group of people that created it is they knew that... I mean, look at Libra, right? The Facebook coin. I mean, they were dead on arrival. They were dragged straight up and onto the hill. They were, you know, over in Europe. I mean, they were they were crushed because everyone knew who was behind it. And so, I mean, you have to be that smart. You have to understand all these different things. And then you also have to understand that you can't be known who you are. It really is incredible. Man, I would love to know who is behind it. I mean, I'm sure there's millions and millions and millions of people who want to know and some people that would pay a lot of money to know that. But yeah, they've got to be some of the smartest people that have ever walked uh, the face of this earth. Let's talk about how you can calculate the value of this. Because with the stock, you can calculate the intrinsic value of the business and then determine if the stock is undervalued, fairly valued, or even overvalued. It doesn't necessarily seem like you can do that with Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. So inherently, doesn't that mean it's a speculation play, not an investment? And how are you attempting to value things like this as a value investor? So this is a question that when I was buying it back in 2015, 2016, that period of time, a lot of people had that that question. And I don't think that I had a really good answer for how I was valuing it back then, other than if this would catch on in a global level, the market cap would have to be over a trillion dollars. And back then, I mean, it was a market cap of five billion dollars. So right there, you were you were a hundred X easy on. The big question was like, how long is that adoption going to take? Now, I think we have a much better idea of the speed of the adoption rate because we're seeing how the protocol is executing Metcalf's law through stock the flow. And there's a lot of models today that didn't exist five years ago when I first started getting into this. The way I would describe it to a value investor is I'd say very similar to the way I was thinking about it back in 2015. I would tell you, I think your market cap on the very low end, I'd say this is a super ultra conservative number, from my opinion, is $2 trillion. I think a mediocre market cap might be around 30 trillion. Mediocre to probably high would be 30 trillion. 
There's people out there that'll make arguments for it being even higher than that. But for simplicity's sake, let's just say it's between two to $30 trillion is the market cap of how high this could go if it starts replacing fiat, which it seems that's what's happening right now. So based on the price being where it is today, you know, in the 180 billion range, that means that you're at about a 10 to it'd be a 10x move if it went to two trillion. And it'd be around 164x move if you went to 30 trillion from where we're at now. So then you say, well, how long is it going to take to get there? And I would say a very conservative estimate is another 10 years to get to that level. And so if it takes 10 years to get to that level, you can go back, you can basically do a annual adjusted rate of return in order to get that that 10x and 164x move. And you're between a 30 to a 76% annual return, annual return at the current price. And that's how I do an IRR. If it's a stock, I, I figure out what is the internal rate of return that I'm going to get based on the price of where it's at now and the future cash flows that I expect to receive in the future. And then I figure out what percent does that give me today? And that's my IRR. And so I, I'm doing like a, I guess I'm doing some form of an IRR, but with a currency that I think has a huge adoption rate on the horizon. So if someone doesn't have, say, 10,000 US dollars to buy one whole Bitcoin, they can still buy a, a fraction of it or a decimal of it, like you mentioned, and still earn those same returns? Exactly. So if you have 100 bucks, and that's all you can afford, 100 US fiat dollars backed by nothing, people will say it's backed by the military. Well, it might be, but the, uh, the monetary baseline is backed by nothing. It's going to keep expanding. Yeah, you can take that 100 bucks and you can go buy 0.00 whatever Bitcoin. And it'll perform the same as if you owned one Bitcoin or 10 Bitcoins or 100 Bitcoins. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? 
What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So with all of this talk about valuing Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, as well as its potential return, how can this even be considered a currency? That's one of the hardest parts for me to wrap my head around. From the very beginning, a few years ago, when I first started learning about it or reading about it a little bit today, it's still the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around. You know, I can understand how someone could think of it as an investment, like you've talked about throughout this episode, but I have so far had a tough time understanding how it could be considered a currency. You know, people can freely spend the US dollar because it's relatively stable, whereas with Bitcoin, if it's going to be achieving the returns that you just mentioned, why would anyone spend it like a normal currency? Why would they give up those potential future returns for a simple product or service? And I'm sure you've heard the story about the guy that bought pizza with it in its early days. So just, I guess, why for those things? So a fun note about the pizza. So it was 10,000 Bitcoin. He purchased the pizza. It was the first transaction. Today, you can purchase a Gulfstream 650 and a $30 million mansion with the same 10,000 Bitcoin. So if you want to talk about hyperinflation relative to owning Bitcoin, there's a perfect example. You went from pizza to Gulfstream 650 and $30 million mansion. So it's all, what is your unit numer that you're using in order to gauge the central banking printing that's happening? More to your point on the volatility and the utility of the currency and why so many people are having a hard time understanding. So I don't know if you saw this, Robert, but I got in a Twitter war with Mark Cuban. And I mean, this was, it was a pretty engaged conversation. And in fact, I'll, I'll try to dig up the thread so we can put it in the show notes if people want to check out the discussion, the back and forth. And Mark, in my, humble, in my very humble opinion, Mark's a billionaire, right? So he's got all the credibility in the world. I'm literally nobody. And so people listening to this, you can, you can gauge this however you want. But I think Mark is missing a very key component of this. Mark is skeptical of it because he went to his Mavs stadium down in Dallas, Texas, and he allows people to purchase seats into the stadium with Bitcoin. And I think in, in a year or like a really long time since he implemented people being able to pay with Bitcoin, he said he had $600, $700 worth of transactions of people buying tickets with Bitcoin to come into a stadium. And his argument is, well, if no one's using it, then it's worthless. Like You can't convince me that Bitcoin's going to become a thing if nobody's using it. They're not going to the game and paying with it. He's like, people have to pay with it in order for it to work, right? Like That's Mark's argument. And what I told Mark 
I said, you're going to change your opinion on Bitcoin. And this is when you're going to change it. I said, when the price hits $1 trillion in the market cap, and you're still collecting $600 worth of payments at your games, I said, that's when you're going to change your opinion because that's 5X higher than we're at right now. And I don't suspect that he is ever going to have people paying at his games for Bitcoin. And the reason why is because Bitcoin's not solving a transactional problem. Bitcoin is solving a monetary baseline at a sovereign level problem. And so what you're going to find is, my opinion is these countries are still going to continue to have their own domestic currencies. They're going to tokenize the dollar. They're already talking about doing that. You're seeing other countries that are tokenizing their... It doesn't even matter because you have people like Adam Back that have already tokenized the dollar on, call it liquid, or you got the tether that's already tokenized the dollar. So you're still going to have that because people are always going to pay their taxes in that domestic currency. But you're not going to have an incentive for anybody to go out there and spend something that goes up 400% annually. And guess what? That doesn't mean they're still not going to buy it and hold it if it goes up 400% annually. I have Bitcoin. The last thing I would do is go to a Mavs game and spend my Bitcoin to go into the, the stadium and watch the game. I'm going to spend my fiat and do that. The stuff that's devaluing against Bitcoin at 400% a year. So I think that's the thing where a lot of people miss the utility is that this is not going to be like the fiat that devalues like crazy that we're accustomed to as far as holding it. Now, when you get into the volatility piece of it, I can totally understand why people don't want to put a substantial portion of their savings into Bitcoin because the volatility is so high. But guess what? You know how you manage that risk? You manage that risk through sizing. I don't have to make Bitcoin 20% of my portfolio. I can make it 1% of my portfolio. And here's a fun fact. If you held Bitcoin for any four-year period of time, if you pick any four-year, and the reason I'm using four years is because that's the halving cycle. You have to understand how the protocol functions from an engineering standpoint to know how to look at it, right? So you could pick any four-year period of time, right? Any chunk of four years. And if you had 1% exposure, 1% to Bitcoin, and the rest was in cash, $1 in Bitcoin, $99 in cash, you would have matched the performance of the S&P 500, which has done a 400% return over the last 10 years. 1% exposure, right? So if let's say the volatility is 68% and you had 1% exposure, you don't even notice it because it's such a small exposure. But when it goes up 400% and then the next year it goes up another, I mean, heck man, I had one year where it went like two or 3,000% in a year. It's insane. So you, you adjust your exposure size to account for the volatility in your risk. This is just basic investing stuff. I wonder if Mark Cuban has held on to those six or $700 worth of Bitcoin that he has sold. I think I remember seeing somewhere in the, in the exchange where he didn't and he converted it into, like I guess the company that they were using to accept the transactions was immediately converting it into fiat. So with all that volatility, should someone wait for a dip, you know, a quote unquote dip to buy their 1%? Oh boy. That's a super hard question because of the volatility. And having owned it for five years, I can tell you it is one of the hardest things to get that timing. For people that are really interested in this, I would argue I've had a lot of success on the timing of owning Bitcoin, when to sell it, when to buy it. What I've used is the Mayer Multiple, which is something that myself and Trace Mayer co-created. 
it basically takes 200-day moving average. It looks at the price. It basically divides those two. So you get the units of dollars out of there and you just have a, a straight ratio to understand what's a high price, what's a normal price, and what's a low price. So I guess let me give you an example. If you take the price at $200, the 200-day moving average is 100. That would be a mayor multiple of a 2.0. And that would be a pretty normal price to buy Bitcoin. You're not getting a great deal. You're not getting a bad deal. It's just kind of where it normally are. It's, it's a little high, not high. 1.4, I think, is the average for the price that it trades. You're getting a really good deal. Like recently, I bought some. The price went down to 6,500. I, I was able to execute a limit order. And that was a mayor multiple of like 0.68, which happens, I don't know, five or 7% of the time based on the, when you plot the stats of that. You do it. You do a distribution plot, it's it's like five or six percent of the time. If you go to mayormultiple.com, it's a domain that I own and it it goes into the math behind that and it shows the stats, it shows you the uh, distribution plot and all that fun stuff. It shows you a histogram and all sorts of fun stuff. The other thing that I would tell you to look at is really pay close attention to plan B's work on the stock to flow to understand what the price is at. More importantly, understand where you're at in the four-year cycle. So my personal opinion, right now, you're probably at one of the most opportune times to enter a Bitcoin position because in the coming two years, I expect to have extremely good price action in the coming two years. If you would have asked me that two years ago, in fact, pull up my uh, Twitter feed from December of 2017, and you'll see me saying, owning Bitcoin right now is extremely dangerous and probably not a good idea. I had about a whole month of tweets when the price was 18 to 20,000 go to December 2017 and look at some of my comments and you will see that back then I was saying this was very risky to be buying it at that point in time because I understood where it was at in the four-year cycle. So understand where you're at in the four-year cycle before you buy it because there's going to be people that are listening to this conversation two years from now. The price will be $100,000 or more and they'll be buying it and they're probably going to be assuming they're going to get maybe be on a very bumpy road ahead if the cycle continues to perform the way that it has in the past. I caution people listening two years from now, because if the bond market explodes, which is a potential based on the central banking actions, you might see Bitcoin fully become a global currency at that point. It could go to a million dollars for all we know. So it's really hard to make comments about that far in the future based on where we're at and everything that's happening. What role does non-professional or unsophisticated investors play in the price of Bitcoin in terms of their irrationality, right? So when you talked about the run up to 18 to 20,000, I had people in my life that are friends, family, acquaintances that knew I was into finance, investing, things like that. And they were all texting me, telling me that they were running out buying Bitcoin. And so what, what role does just people that don't understand it to the degree that you do how do they either help or hurt the way that you see your models working? I would argue that when you look at the stock to flow and from a technical standpoint, price should go to 100,000. Where they come into play is on the emotional side. So they're going to they're gonna blow the price way through 100,000 on the way up. But they're also the same ones that are going to blow it down through 100,000 after it goes through its correction. And then by the end of the four-year cycle, it's going to come back to its appropriate price of 100,000. So, you know, if I was going to spitball it, yeah, I'd tell you December of 2021-ish, somewhere around that time frame, plus or minus 60 to 90 days is probably where you're going to see that peak of speculators 
that don't know much that are chasing the price action are going to drive the price to probably two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars at that point by December twenty twenty one. Those same people that buy at those extreme prices are the same ones that unravel it coming back down and then back down through a hundred thousand, and then that's when you really want to buy it because the price during that cycle is call it a hundred thousand based on stock to flow. So they just basically make it go more extreme on both sides, on the buying and on the selling. That's all they do. So how about government regulation? This is a component that we haven't even mentioned yet. We've assumed that it can just continue to operate without government intervention. But what if the government does try to step in? So we've already seen this happen. Back in 2017, the Chinese government came out and they said, you can own Bitcoin. You cannot buy it on an exchange. They banned the exchanges. And the impact in the short term was the price went down, but the impact in the long term was nothing. That's the tricky part for a government is in order for it to get shut down, every single government has to decide to shut it down. Every single government. I would argue you have a very strong incentive for countries that are not from the US, which is everybody but us, to have something other than dollar dominance. Because think about it, dollar dominance has provided the US an extremely powerful position in the world. And it's been that way since Bretton Woods. Let me say Germany. Right now, Germany is building so much legal framework around the protection of Bitcoin because I think they understand where this is all going. And I think they understand the value of trying to attract as much of that business into their country to attract as much Bitcoin into their country. When it becomes a new global currency, and they have one of the best legal frameworks on the planet right now to promote Bitcoin businesses into their country. I think that's going to set a precedence for many other countries to do something very similar. So the fact that you already have a country like Germany, a country the size of Germany, doing something like that, if you go ahead and ban it, you can do that. But I think what you're going to do is you're just going to lose your place in line, and now you're at the back of the line. And long term, that's going to be it's going to be a huge disadvantage for the countries that do it. I, I would argue China is a perfect example of something that was that was done in haste and done in fear, and it's going to be a huge consequence to them long term if they're not doing something behind the scenes to put as many of the as many of these things into their treasury as possible. So, how would a ban work? Say the U.S. government decides to ban Bitcoin, can people in the U.S. still obtain it some way, or is it how would that work? Absolutely, they can. They can VPN out, you know, through encryption. They can VPN outside of the the country. Now, you have to have an exchange in some other country. Which, boy, there's going to be a black market for that real fast. You could VPN to that exchange. You could collect the coins, and then you could run your own full node up through the Blockstream satellite. There's there's satellites in space right now that are broadcasting the blockchain. Whether people believe that, understand that, you can take a satellite to your house. You can connect to the Blockstream satellite that's orbiting Earth. You can. You can run your own full node. You can conduct transactions, and you don't have to go through a internet service provider hub, and they'd have no idea what your IP address is or anything. So it sounds like it'd be very difficult to even ban on a wide scale, even if they wanted to. Absolutely, it's the same reason you can't ban BitTorrent to this day. It still exists. I mean, Bram Cohen, who created BitTorrent, he is a hardcore Bitcoiner. <laughs> So let's talk about some of the misconceptions about Bitcoin. What is a misconception surrounding Bitcoin or just cryptocurrencies in general 
that you think a lot of people have? And why is that? I really think a lot of people have a misconception as to what it's trying to solve, first of all. I think a lot of people are thinking that it's for transactional basis. I mean, you have a guy, Roger Ver, who I can't even tell you how much money he lost. And that was one of the forks that we were talking about earlier with Bitcoin Cash. I mean, the guy was hell-bent on the idea that this is for transactions of buying coffee. And in my humble opinion, he made the most fatal mistake of all, which was trying to make this something that it was not trying to solve whatsoever. This is trying to solve a global peg to global money because there's an issue where fiat is run amok and you're driving interest rates to nothing and you're about to have an explosion in the bond market. Do you think that that misconception exists because it's much easier for people to, you know, the general population, for them to understand and wrap their head around it being a transactional currency rather than it being a peg? I mean, think about it. Mark Cuban, billionaire, Mavs owner. He's as smart as they come when it comes to business. He's making that same mistake. He's making the Roger Ver argument. It's crazy to me. I, I mean, when I was having the back and forth with him, I'm literally laughing out loud like, this dude does not get it. This is, this is blowing my mind that somebody who made all this money in tech doesn't get this. So, I mean, how is your, how is your mom and dad going to get it? I mean, come on, give me a break. So I'd say it's pretty clear that you're, you're bullish on Bitcoin, but what would someone on the other side of the argument say? What are the bears saying about Bitcoin? What are some of the major risks or cons to just cryptocurrencies in general and maybe more specifically Bitcoin? I think a lot of people are going to make the argument about the, the government banning it. They're, they're always going to go back to that. You're going to have people making arguments as to there's a million of the coins. How do you know Bitcoin's going to win? There's a lot of arguments that just keep coming up and keep coming up. And it's funny because I just look at it like, oh my God, we used to hash that out back in 2015 a million times. Like the fact that you're bringing this up in 2020 is just (laughs) kind of funny in a way. But uh, those are some of the big ones that I can think of just off the top of my head. Admittedly, those are the two things that I think of initially from someone who doesn't know a lot about the technology or Bitcoin in general, and I'm not pro or con for it. I I don't know enough to have an educated opinion on it, but just from my knowledge, those are the two things that I think about a lot and things that I've heard just from people who are skeptical about it as well. The one other one that I think is huge is the Cuban argument, which is, well, no one's using it. It's going to be slower than me just pulling a dollar out of my pocket and paying or swiping my credit card. Why doesn't that work? Like You're going to hear that argument all day as well. Yeah. And I think it comes back to just a complexity versus simplicity type dynamic where it's too complex to understand why that's not necessarily the case. And it's simpler to just say that that's why it won't work. But this is what people have to think about is back when you had Bretton Woods, did you see people going to stores and paying with gold? Did you see any of that stuff? No, you didn't. But that was the root of the entire underlying layer one of the entire financial system globally was the balance of payments of the amount of gold that central banks had in their coffers. So if we had a deficit with Germany or vice versa and it needed to be adjudicated in gold, well, it took place in gold. Those balance of payments occurred at that central banking fundamental layer level. And all that's happening right now is that, but it's happening digitally now. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? 
Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com mi. netsuite.com mi. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. So how does this entire conversation relate back to millennials and their investing? What actionable advice do you have for a new investor who's just getting started on their investing journey that's listening to the show today? Should they be allocating a portion of their portfolio to cryptocurrencies or are they better off just sticking with the tried and true assets like ETFs and stocks? I think you're absolutely nuts if you don't have some exposure to this, my personal opinion. I would highly encourage millennials to get smart on the four-year cycle. Understand where you're at in that four-year cycle for Bitcoin and be very hesitant to add to your position when 
you're at the top of that cycle, which I'm saying is probably somewhere around like December of 2021 for the next cycle. Be careful adding to your position during those times. And when you're in the bottom or you're in a very advantageous part of the cycle, you should probably have a much larger percentage inside your portfolio. So like right now, I think is a very advantageous time to be a buyer. And this is where I would probably take a larger percentage on your portfolio. So it's still an advantageous time, even though that it's up 43% since January 1st of 2020. And we're only at, what, February 13th today as we're recording this? Yeah, I think so. My expectation for the end of the year, end of year closeout is a price of 20000 Why I'm saying that number has a lot of reasons behind it. I'm not just pulling a number out of thin air. That's, that's my metric. In fact, I posted that on Twitter probably three or four days ago as to what I think is a buy line and where I expect it to end by the end of the year. But my estimated price by the end of this year, 2020, is going to be around $20,000, which means you could go you know, 100% gain from here. And I'm no technical analysis trader by any means, but with the last peak ending around 20,000, is there a, a resistance at that 20,000 number if we do get there again? There absolutely is. And if and when, in my opinion, it penetrates the 20,000, that's when you start getting your just crazy moves to the upside is when it penetrates the previous all-time high. Yeah. I suspect that you're going to go from 20,000 to 200,000 in a year. Uh, so after you would hit the 20,000, call it next December, I think by the following December, you're going to have literally gone from 20,000 to 200,000. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about as well is how this is portrayed on social media. So let's take Instagram, for example. I hear this conversation that you and I are having. This all makes sense. It makes me bullish on Bitcoin. You know, I came into this conversation not knowing much, but now through what we've learned and what I've learned through you, I feel like it's a much more legitimate asset that I can be bullish on. But then I think there's a lot of people and, and that are going to see on Instagram, they're going to get fraud messages all the time. I get hundreds of them probably a day saying that they can make you rich with Bitcoin overnight. So how is that going to play into Bitcoin and the legitimacy of it? So you're endowed with senses, right? That are innate to your protection. Just your, that's how you're wired. That's your genetic DNA that wires that into your brain. And then your past experiences, you've been conditioned to be aware of scams. And when a person hears me say, oh, I think it's going to be 20,000 by December, and then it's going to be 200,000 the year after that, their senses are saying that is a total flipping scam, 100%. And that means you have good senses. <laughs> so what you have to do is you have to say, all right, well, how are they coming to that opinion? What's behind that opinion? What's driving it? And you have to ask yourself a lot of hard questions. And you have to do an extreme amount of work to understand what's behind that, whether it's true or not. I would argue this is the strongest reason why Bitcoin's going to be successful is because so many people do not believe this is possible and they don't invest. Dude, I can't even tell you how many hours I've invested into trying to understand this. I can't even put a number to it. But that's because I was extremely skeptical. But I think what drove me to research it is I understood the fundamental global problem that was happening. And I was searching for how in the world is this going to be resolved? Because right now it appears like there's no solution to this. And lo and behold, I started reading up on Bitcoin and I said, oh my God, I think this could potentially be the solution. Then I dug more and I dug more and I dug more. So I kind of came to it and from a completely different vantage point of 
your typical person who comes to it as total speculation to make a quick buck. That's how a lot of people come to this. And that's why so many people are skeptical of it. You know, when you're skeptical of something is when you don't understand it. That's when you're skeptical of it because you're saying that's too good to be true. That person looks like a scammer. They sound like a scammer and they're promising things that there's no way is possible. Scam level of analysis complete and they're done. And so I would challenge the heck out of everybody to question everything I just said and to treat me as if I am a scammer because that's how you're going to arrive at the truth. And if you don't arrive at the truth as to how this thing works, you will not have the conviction to hold it through wild swings and wild rides. I mean, that's just a fact from stock investing is if you don't actually have conviction behind your trade, you will not hold it and you will sell when it goes down. So if a person goes out there and buys Bitcoin, you, you had said, I don't know if we said this before or during the discussion, but you had said that you purchased it and then you turned around and sold it. Well, why did you do that? Well, because you knew you didn't understand it. And everybody else who's listening to this is going to do the exact same thing. If they buy it, it goes down 20% in a day, which can happen. They'll sell the position because inherently at their core level, they have no idea what's actually happening. So when you see these people on Instagram and they're saying, I'm going to make you rich and just buy this token and this crypto coin. Well, you, you're chasing a narrative that you heard where your neighbor made $1,000 or $10,000 or whatever, and you're trying to replicate it based on speculation and hope opposed to truth and understanding. So I don't know if I answered your question well, but I would tell you being skeptical is a good thing and doing your homework as to how it works is insanely important to not be shaken out of your position if you do decide to take a position. And following the right resource. Don't, don't go follow some yahoo who's a nobody who has no experience in financial markets, doesn't even know what a bond is or know what a stock is. If that person's telling you what to buy, well, I guess I'm going to say it bluntly. You're being dumb, right? You're being dumb. So do your research on who the person is. Look at what authority they have and, and how they got that authority and technically why they're making the arguments that they're making. I'm wondering if a similar tactic that I like to use in the stock market can work with Bitcoin, specifically for people listening to the show who haven't studied it like I haven't. So when there's a stock, now that there's no commissions on trading, I do this even more. But if there's a a company on my radar and I'm interested in it, it's hard for me to find the time to actually analyze that company and determine if I want to buy a position. So now I buy one share or two shares just to get it in my portfolio. Now I have skin in the game and now just something psychologically tells you that you need to go make the time and research that company because you have money on the line. And so it, and it really works. It really does. And so I wonder if somebody should, you know, listening to the show today that's interested but skeptical, maybe buy it's $10,000. So maybe you buy a tenth of a coin or even a 5% of a coin and just kind of get some skin in the game so that you are then invested in it. And then you go and learn about it more. And then so you feel comfortable either sell your position because you decide you don't believe in the thesis or you believe in it after you studied it and you buy more. I think that's a great way to do it. If someone listening to the show today is completely new to cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, and just blockchain in general, like I am, but they want to learn more about these topics, what resources would you recommend they check out? Any specific books for a new investor? I know we mentioned a bunch of different resources so far, and those will definitely go in the show notes, but any specific books or other resources? So I think it's really important who you follow and who you pay attention to. So 
you want to pay attention to the engineers that have actually written the code for this stuff and the people that have participated in this. So people like Adam Back is somebody you want to follow on Twitter. Somebody like Nick Zabo is somebody you want to follow on Twitter. There's three podcasts that I would recommend. One is Stefan Lavera. Uh, he has a podcast. We'll have it in the show notes. You have another podcast called Noted. You have another one by Trace Mayer that I would highly recommend. I think those three people are total forces in this field for podcasts to listen to. The first book that I read back in 2015 was called The Age of Cryptocurrency. I thought that was an extremely good book. It was written by some Wall Street Journal authors. And um, there's a couple other books that I'd recommend. One is called The Bitcoin Standard. This is uh, written by Saifedina Moose. That's an incredible, incredible book that I think is vital for people to read. There's another book called The Book of Satoshi. And what it does is it takes all the emails, it takes all the everything that Satoshi ever wrote, and they put it into a book. I would highly recommend that you check that out. There is a a website called the Nakamoto Institute that's run by uh, Michael Goldstein and Pierre Richard. That's an incredible resource. I would highly encourage people to read the Bitcoin white paper, which is you know Satoshi's very first document that he published that talks about Bitcoin in general. I took a course from Yale University that is completely free. I think it's on Coursera that was, oh my God, 65 to 70 hours long that gets into the details of how Bitcoin from a technical standpoint works. I would highly recommend that. There's a guy named Jameson Loop that has a just incredible list of resources that will be way better than everything that I just listed for you that goes into all these details of, of things. He is a an original contributor to the source code as far as updates and things like that to the protocol. So huge source that you would want to follow on Twitter as well. All of those things, we will get you links in the show notes to, and that will get you moving in the right direction. But pay very close attention to the source of people that you follow in this industry because, I mean, there's so many coins out there and so many scammers that are trying to leverage quote unquote blockchain and all these buzzwords, but follow the right people, read the right resources, and I think you'll, you'll be in a good spot. As Preston mentioned, I'll definitely put all of the different resources we've talked about throughout the show in the show notes so you guys could go check it out in case you missed any if you couldn't write it down. So you can definitely go to the show notes and check it out. They will all be there. Preston, thanks so much for coming on the show today and talking all about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin with me and the audience. I know I learned a ton from our conversation and so I'm sure the audience will too. Hey man, this was a blast. I had so much fun. I lost my voice. So that's it, guys. That's the end of the two-part series about Bitcoin, blockchain, and other cryptocurrencies. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I had to listen to it a few times, but I learned a ton, and I can't wait to dive into all of the different resources that Preston mentioned throughout the show. You can find all of those resources linked below in the show notes of your favorite podcast player or at theinvestorspodcast.com and clicking on the Millennial Investing Show. If you know anyone that wants to learn more about Bitcoin, blockchain, or cryptocurrencies, please share this completely free two-part series with them. And I'd love to hear what you thought about this two-part structure. Connect with me on Instagram with my username, Robert at TIP, which is spelled out as Robert A-T-T-I-P. And let me know what you thought. Did you like how the episodes were split in two? Would you have preferred one much longer episode? Or do you like the shorter content? Do you even like learning about the topics Preston and I talked about? 
I truly do love hearing your feedback and connecting with you guys. I respond to every single comment and DM that I get, so be sure to reach out. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.